So when we say the human is a system or the human system, what we're talking about is trying to make sure that the engineers realize that the human can require maintenance and repair in the same way that every other system in the spaceflight mission does. And if you forget that, that truth, then eventually you're going to dump enough risk onto the human and the human system will fail, right? The human is not going to be able to do the job that you want them to do, or they're going to get ill or injured, which also results in them not being able to do the job that you want to do probably, but then adds on more complication, right? How do you even get them home safely? Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Eric Antonsen, who's a board-certified emergency physician with a PhD in aerospace engineering. Eric holds an assistant professorship of both emergency medicine and space medicine from the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And he's had a super interesting career. From 2015 to 2018, he was the element scientist for exploration medical capabilities at NASA's human research program. And then from 2018 until just recently, he was the assistant director for risk management for the human health and performance directorate at NASA Johnson Space Center. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. We talk about the logistics of defining and optimizing how the human system performs, both in space and then back home on Earth. We talk deeply about processing uncertainty and about what it takes to perform in the austere, antagonistic, and honestly, just absolutely crazy environments that our astronauts have to perform in in space. And then Eric's nice enough to end by giving some advice to anybody who might be interested in becoming an astronaut in the future, which, let's be honest, is probably all of us. Before we dive into the episode, an update on our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and it will be out and available on May 11th. Now, I am really excited to bring this to you all. No matter what arena you operate in or where you are in your training, if you are somebody who performs under pressure, then this book was written for you. Now, like the podcast, it's a mix of models from the emergency department and beyond, covering individual and team performance in the most critical moments when it truly matters that we need to be at our best. So stay tuned for more detail about the book. And in the meantime, go to emergencymind.com slash book to download a sample chapter. Okay, all that said, let's get into this episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. All right, uh, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's awesome to get to see you again. You were like a huge influence on me when I was just starting out in emergency medicine, you know, quote, like back in the day. Uh, and I'm really psyched to have you here talking about talking about human performance. I appreciate you having me on, Dan. This is it's great to reconnect, and uh, I think that uh, this is an interesting topic. Right on. Um, can we start? Can you give folks just like a, a elevator pitch of who you are, what you've been up to, and and how you operate in this whole world? Uh, absolutely. So um, my name is Eric Anson. I am a uh, mixture of backgrounds. I am an aerospace engineer. I have a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in that domain uh, that I got before I went to medical school. And then I became a practicing emergency medicine physician, which is how we met when I was finishing residency up at the, uh, uh, the Harvard uh, Mass General and Brigham residency. Um, in that time, since then, part of my career has been trying to figure out how to bridge the gap between those specific domains. And uh, the place where that sort of landed me, uh, unintended, is at NASA. Um, in a number of different roles. So I, I worked for a while as the element scientist for exploration medical capabilities. This is a research element in the human research program at NASA that really tries to figure out how you decide what medical stuff you need or capability uh, that you need in spaceflight for all the different missions that NASA is looking to do, ranging from low Earth orbit today out to Mars, um, and how you design that into vehicles. How do you make sure that it's effective and that it actually helps the crew? Because as you build system complexity, you can also hurt the crew with that complexity. And as a natural outgrowth of that, after uh, several years working on those problems, uh, I ended up uh, in the role of Assistant Director for Human Health and Performance at Johnson Space Center uh, for risk management for the human system. So I was chairing the Human System Risk Board, which is a place where all of the different stakeholders in risk that the human system in spaceflight carries, sit down around a table and discuss the problems related to health and performance in space. And how do we need to um, understand those problems? Where do we need to 
mitigate those problems? And how do we not create bigger problems for the rest of the mission and the vehicle and all the other folks uh, by trying to fix the human problems in space flight? So I just finished that role about two weeks ago. And uh, due to the vagaries of government contracting, I'm now back into the independent research domain, uh, working on some of that risk modeling and, and how to have those conversations and how to make smart decisions about that. Hmm. That's awesome. Th thank you. And congratulations on your transition to, uh, to this new phase. Um, sounds incredibly interesting. Can, can you, for those of us that don't operate in this universe, like what, is the, what do you mean when you say the human system? It's actually a very important way of trying to reframe a discussion in spaceflight. When you think about where we've been in human spaceflight, right? We, we started in 1961 with Yuri Gagarin going up into space for a few orbits. And, and the US um, started after that launch. Um, since that time, almost all of the space flight that we've experienced has occurred in low Earth orbit. And the most memorable um, um, challenges that we've had in space flight are often the most tragic, right? The Apollo 1 fire that happened that killed uh, three crew on the ground while they were prepping for space flight. The Challenger uh, where the crew uh, was lost in the ascent phase of the mission. Uh, Columbia, where they were lost in entry, descent, and landing phase of the mission. These are high energy phases where um, systems of the spacecraft and the vehicle had failures, but not the human system. And most of the time that we've been flying in spaceflight, humans have been seen as a place where you could absorb more risk because humans were flexible. Right? Humans have the ability to um, adjust to changing circumstances, whereas your solid rocket boosters on the space shuttle really don't, right? And so you have a, a pile of different systems in every spacecraft that goes up. And they range from the propulsion system, the structures, the avionics, guidance, navigation, and control. There's a whole bunch of different systems that have to be balanced against each other to make space flat flight safe and workable. Because most of our experience has been in low Earth orbit with a lot of advantages, we've created an operating sort of paradigm in low Earth orbit that relies on the human as a place to dump excess risk, right? We can't quite get the environmental control and life support system to get the carbon dioxide level down to what we would breathe on Earth. So therefore, we just have the humans absorb that. Right. And we try to set standards to push that level down, but we're, you know, we're way above what you normally breathe on Earth in carbon dioxide. And for a while on the space station, crew were getting headaches, right? Hmm. Not not everybody. There's biologic variability to the environment, right? But it's it's that system that had a limitation. And then the excess risk from that system was just pushed off onto the people. We've seen that in a number of different places in spaceflight throughout the, the history of spaceflight. There's a lot of examples we can walk through and probably will, but the basic story is that NASA is an engineering organization. There's 12,000 people that work at the Johnson Space Center. The vast majority of them are engineers. The engineers look at spaceflight, even human spaceflight, as a set of systems that they got to balance to get right to go and do their mission. Because they dump, they're so used to dumping risk onto the humans, they fail to think of the human as a system. Right. So when we say the human is a system or the human system, what we're talking about is trying to make sure that the engineers realize that the human can require maintenance and repair in the same way that every other system in the spaceflight mission does. And if you forget that that truth, then eventually you're going to dump enough risk onto the human and the human system will fail right? The human is not going to be able to do the job that you want them to do, or they're going to get ill or injured, which also results in them not being able to do the job that you want to do probably, but then adds on more complication, right? How do you even get them home safely, right? So, so when we talk about the human system, it's from that perspective. It's trying to, to modify our vocabulary to be consistent with and influential with whole giant pile of engineers who are not used to thinking of the human that way. So the advantage that we have in low earth orbit when we go, and this is the advantage that commercial spaceflight companies will enjoy for a while until they try to go to Mars or to the moon or something like that, right? Is that we have three very big advantages. One of them 
is that we can resupply anything that we need to. And the International Space Station functions because of that. The One of the biggest things that humans, the crew, love up there is fresh fruit and vegetables, right? It, it's a huge morale booster. Um, as soon as you go to the moon, you take that away. So in going to Mars, forget about it, right? Um, after consumables, right? As soon as you lose or make the logistics supply train for your crew um, more stretched out or more difficult to support, um, you have other challenges. In low Earth orbit, uh, we can evacuate somebody if they get ill or injured. We talk about it once in a while when things happen. 2018, there was a paper published that talked about the first venous thrombosis in space, deep venous thrombosis. And I can tell you that when we were looking at that case, there was a lot of people talking about whether we need to evacuate, hmm. right? This is maintenance and repair of the human system. This is medicine interfacing with a lot of unknowns about how, you know, still how the spaceflight environment affects us. Um, we had never seen it before. It's the first time we captured it and documented it. It was found incidentally on ultrasound that was being done for research purposes. Still has never hurt anybody in spaceflight. So how much of a risk is it? We don't know. We're still learning. Keep in mind that less than 600 people have ever flown in space. So our data set, which has been stretched out since from 1961 to today, has been taken with a whole bunch of different types of data and a whole bunch of different systems, sometimes sporadically, sometimes not at all. And, you know, we didn't start flying people for long duration, like six months until... The U.S. didn't really until uh, they sent a few people to Mir as an experiment and then on the ISS, which really started 20 years ago. So we've had a good strong 20 years of, of experience flying people for about six months. And if you're under 20 years old, you've never lived in a world where somebody hasn't been up working in space. Just keep that in mind. Um, it's not something that a lot of people realize, right? So we've been learning as we stretch out further but we, we still experience new things. And the farther you go away from Earth, the harder it is to evacuate somebody who has something like that happen to them. What if that DVT that was in the jugular vein, right, uh, progressed to a PE and somebody had significant medical issue? If they're up on the ISS, we can start working on them. We've got, all, we've got certain medical equipment that we can bring to bear and we can get them down potentially, right? 90 minutes to 36 hours, somewhere between there. Take that away when you go to the moon. Now it's three to 11 days, depending on your orbital mechanics. And when you go to Mars, you don't have the option. Your definitive medical capability is whatever you bring with you in terms of capability from the crew, as well as whatever stuff you packed, right? So that's number two, right? That ability to evacuate and the ability to, to resupply your consumables was number one. And number three is real-time support. Mission control, you have access to somewhere up to about 150 mines of expertise that you can access if something goes wrong, whether it's an anomaly with the vehicle or a medical problem with the crew, right? As we go further and further out into space, real-time communication becomes limited by the speed of light. Now, at the moon, the Apollo astronauts had like somewhere between one and two seconds of time delay, which was not that significant. And, you know, lunar base and, and, other, and future lunar plans will have similar, probably, unless they really mess up the communications. But can't happen. Communications can go down, right? When you go to Mars, the closest approach between Mars and Earth is a three-minute one-way signal, which means if you said hello, it would take them six minutes to get hello back to you. So you can't really get real-time support from that type of time delay. When Mars is at its furthest point from Earth, uh, distance from Earth, we were talking about about 45 minute round trip time for communication, right? 23 minutes or so to go to send a message to Earth Mission Control that says, Houston, we have a problem. 23 minutes back that they say, tell us what the nature of your emergency is. <laughs> When you're, when you're in what's called superior solar conjunction, you may end up losing communications for two around two weeks completely just because the sun's in the way. 
Uh, and unless you actually station additional satellites to relay the signals, you just lose communications completely for those. So when Elon Musk says that he's planning to go to Mars, right? NASA has been studying this problem for years. And a lot of what I've done in the last six years is trying to characterize how big of a problem it is and what do we do about it? How do we ensure that we make the systems that crew can use, that have the support for them that's appropriate, that doesn't overcomplicate their needs uh, and cause more problems? How do we do those things and make that stuff so that crew have a fighting chance of actually getting to Mars, getting the job done and getting home safely? And that's the range of missions that we talk about. So it's a unique problem because for a huge portion of it, we're still learning what the body does in space, right? We're still learning about new medical conditions. We're still learning about what's important and what's not when you put somebody in a microgravity environment. Our data set is significantly less than the data sets that you rely on for, you know, trusting the vaccine that came out for COVID where you had 15,000 people tested under the same conditions, right? We have nothing like that in spaceflight for any of our understanding. So we're often working off a very small end and trying to do the best with extrapolating the data sets we have to say, these are the best decisions we can make. And then the real world is those crew have to go out there and work and perform under that pressure. And that's why I think that this is an interesting problem for, for what you're thinking about. How do we deal under pressure? Uh, yeah, I would. I mean, that's absolutely incredible to hear it laid out like that. And, and there's there, there's so much in that. And, you know, all the time in, in, in what we do in the emergency department, right, we think about um, uncertainty, and we think about speed, but we think about it in very different ways than what you're just talking about, right? My, my uncertainty is what I know about when I don't know about this one person in front of me, but it's superimposed on this incredibly rich, well known environment that we've trained in that is while not always friendly, mostly friendly compared to what you're describing and mostly reproducible and has the advantage of having many, many people have trained through it before. And when we talk about speed and timing, you know, we talk about the entire evolutions that happen within 300 seconds, right? To use the, the Mission Critical Team Institute sort of um, uh, definition of it. Uh, or we talk about things that, that are, you know, we push a paralytic and we do emergency anesthesia and we're intubating somebody and we have just moments to figure that out, all of which is eclipsed by even the communication barrier that you're describing, which is totally incredible. But th the thing that strikes me the most out of what you're describing is how much how much uncertainty you all are building this operation under and how much uncertainty, even sort of meta uncertainty, like not even knowing what you don't know about what's happening like that. So, so maybe let's start there. When, when you're doing this work on um, the human system, which I'm, by the way, now totally going to refer to myself as at work all the time, um, <laughs> you know, the human system needs to drink some water here, but the, um, but in all seriousness, you know, when you're, when you're working with the human system, how do you how do you even conceive of this uncertainty? How do you start approaching it? How how, how aware of the edges of it are you, and and what do you do about that? I think that's a great question, right? Because it's actually a huge portion of what my job has been in the last six years at NASA, is trying to figure out, you know, are the techniques we have for approaching and characterizing uncertainty and risk good enough to get us through these missions? Or do we have to come up with new ones? And in all honesty, part of what I'm studying over the next year is trying to experiment with some new ways to characterize some of that. Um, graph theory, DAGs, network analysis, that sort of stuff. Ways that we don't haven't traditionally brought to bear, at least in the spaceflight field, right? But that struggle with uncertainty is, is um, one that we all struggle with. Now, when NASA approaches uncertainty um, for from a safety perspective, right? And that's a different thing from health and performance, right? Safety is when we're talking about, is Challenger going to blow up or not? Are we going to lose the entire crew because, you know, um, something went wrong with the system? Human health and performance can also lead to loss of crew life, but it's usually through like an individual being injured or or becoming ill or something like that, right? You're more likely to lose a single person from the human health and performance perspective than you are to lose the whole crew. Although, you know, it's not impossible if somebody got COVID up on the space station and they didn't do a good job quarantining, right? Everybody could get it and they would get it right away, right? So that's one of the reasons why we quarantine in spaceflight. And, and they've done a huge amount of work on that for COVID. But the balance of this is that you try to take the sources of uncertainty that you're aware of, right? Figure out how to make sure that you can intervene when small problems are still small problems and before, 
before they come become big problems, right? That's a huge portion of trying to balance that large uncertainty. Now, I mentioned safety versus health and performance, right? Um, on the safety side of things, they're they're struggling with the uncertainty of how much risk you're taking on with the vehicle itself and those systems. And on the health and performance side of it, we're kind of like looking at the uncertainty wrapped around the human aspect of that and how the crew vehicle system functions. So a huge portion of what we're doing is trying to say, if you're going to be worried about somebody getting a kidney stone in a mission, what can you do to either prevent that from happening just from the outset, right? Or to make sure that you have the right stuff in place to be able to deal with it early, right? Before it becomes an impacted kidney stone that leads to sepsis. Because, you know, your uncertainty on outcomes just expands exponentially the longer these problems evolve, mm -hmm. right? Now, we as emergency medicine physicians take it for granted when a patient comes to us, we can look at them, we can probably figure out, yeah, this person's probably got a kidney stone, right? Um, pretty early on because of our experience base. Astronauts, if they don't have a physician on there, and depending on which physician they have on there, may not have that experience base, right? So then it's a question of how do you get to diagnosis? What systems can you use that are built in to make sure that you can figure out whether or not this is actually that problem or something else? Because as you and I both know, somebody walks up to you with abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. Well, it could be the kidney stone. That could be the appendix. It could be the pancreas. It could be the gallbladder. It could be whatever, right? So clinical decision support systems are a big question mark, right? How can we make sure that crew who maybe aren't physicians have the ability to make the right decisions? And so a lot of effort is put into how do you design those systems? How do we try to test and make those systems better? And, you know, I think a lot of people who work as physicians don't trust those systems today because in many cases, they're not as good as us. Computers and AI are doing a great job differentiating which nodes on an X-ray are gonna become cancer and they can do it better than radiologists because they can be trained with data, right? Our problem as emergency physicians is very different. You have anything and everything that are symptoms that could come forward that you've got to now narrow down to a specific thing. And how do you design systems to do that? So a lot of our work in uncertainty is trying to figure out where we can appropriately design systems that can help crew to make right decisions and that can enable them to implement the things they need to, to do to keep small problems from becoming big problems. Challenge is we've got such a limited amount of mass, volume, power, and data bandwidth to work with that we can't bring everything. So we've, you probably heard that they use ultrasound on the space station, which every emergency physician loves, mm -hmm. right? On the space station, they have an ultrasound expert looking over their shoulder through a camera every time they put the ultrasound on somebody and guiding them. Tilt it this way, tilt it that way, right? You can imagine how that's gonna go during an emergency if somebody doesn't know what they're doing. Right. We, we can imagine it because we see this happen all the time when we train our interns, right? Which is that, hey, this, this person comes in with a gunshot wound to the chest. I need you to do a fast exam. And you're just trying to guide them physically right there with their hands. That's hard enough, let alone just by communication, let alone with a communication delay on top of the all of the other chaos going on in that moment. And now throw in that the person is a cosmonaut whose primary language is Russian and you're trying to communicate with them in English. So... So think about the, the leap in capability that something like the Butterfly IQ represents when you have that ability to teach people, right? That the camera on the phone can be used to look at, you know, the position of the probe on the person and the image from the probe is also being processed, the processor internal of that thing and says, hey, do this to get a better picture of the kidney. That type of guidance allows people to train during and throughout a mission to be able to interpret and do things more quickly without necessarily having the brilliance of a guy named a shot down at mission control, talking them through every nuance, right? And the question mark is where is good enough? They don't have to be perfect most of the time. And we try to figure out where good enough is. Oh, right, which again, again is something that we, um, that we think about all the time in emergency medicine, right? Like our job is not perfection, our job is to save the patient and move to the next stage, essentially. So I would imagine that there's a lot of overlap in, in the way that we think about those kind of things. 
Um, but as you're describing that, you know, as you're describing that single expert watching a single person, like what's the difference in how you think about that versus how you think about mission control in general, which you're describing as like this, you know, 150 mind sort of like hive mind about things, because those are very different resources that probably consume a great deal of differences in, in terms of amount of like power and resources that it does to activate each of them. Solving anomalies that happen with your fellow crewmates is one thing where the vast majority of the work is going to go through either flight surgeon, a biomedical engineer, or, you know, a, a flight psychologist, psychiatrist, like behavioral health specialists, right? There's a number of people who are going to work on those problems. Solving the anomalies that happen with the vehicle is a whole different story, right? Um, we've had so many close calls in spaceflight. If you look back to the time when we were working on Mirror, we had a giant fire that happened because of a um, oxygen canister called an S-fog caught fire. Blew up like a Roman candle. Um, interestingly, it actually burned really cleanly. And we didn't have a carbon monoxide problem after that. The highest that carbon monoxide got was 20 parts per, per million. A year later, 1998, there was a different piece of equipment on the Mirror Space Station that actually burned called the Bay Pei. And it was just a puff of smoke that somebody noticed. And they went in and they replaced the part. They found like the charred area where, you know, the electrical contact had happened. They didn't think much of it. Less than an hour later, everybody has headaches. They finally turn on the sensor for carbon monoxide and find that the level is somewhere close to 500 parts per million. The safety level at which you're supposed to put on an oxygen mask up on the station is at 200 parts per million. Why did that happen? For one thing, they made a risk trade. They were using the humans as the canary in the coal mine, right? They were saying it's it's less expensive to have the humans smell things that are off and then turn on sensors hmm. to give us information. In this case, it put crew at significant risk, right? That decision. And today, when we think about the way that we handle data, right? Our iPhones and Android phones and stuff like that, they handle data so seamlessly. But the ISS was built at a time before that was a reality. The Mir space station long before that was a reality. So data handling and how you actually pull together information and the ability to put sensors in place and then you know have computers in work that data, analyze it and help interpret it, right? We're so far along now from where we were then that we're still living in a spaceflight domain where we have those problems, right? We don't turn on even on the ISS a gas analyzer for weak acids and combustion products unless we think that there's been a combustion event. And that's just a legacy of when the, the design freezes for these things happen. So what we're trying to do is look ahead towards future missions and say, how do we leverage the data systems to make sure that we get information for crews to make the right decisions before they start getting the headache from the carbon monoxide exposure? How do we leverage to make sure that we're sensing their, when the, an individual crew member is falling off of their individual sort of baseline to a point where they're gonna potentially not function. And that can happen in a bunch of different ways, right? Sleep impediments, behavioral issues like depression on a really long mission in isolation. Like there's a lot of different ways that somebody can fall off their baseline, but if you can detect that early, you can have the data systems in place that can help us understand when a small problem is developing, then you can intervene early enough to keep it from becoming a larger problem. You have that chance. So that logic of identify a small problem early and think about like trying to catch sentinel events almost, you're catching the beginning of a phase and you're trying to then intervene on it immediately before it progresses to a much larger thing. There are a certain class of problems for which that works, right? Like you'll get a headache from carbon monoxide before you just drop dead. But there's a bunch of things that that doesn't work for, right? There's things that you come in and there isn't a sentinel event or we don't know what the sentinel event is or maybe it's there, but we don't even know how to see it. And how do we prepare for, and how do we design um, human systems, whatever the other part is of systems, and then the interface between those two things that that make us better at identifying those things and addressing them? And I guess a related question is when we're when we're facing these trade-offs in terms of how much material we can bring, which is the equivalent problem in, you know, the emergency world is back here on earth is like how much time and space and energy you have in your brain to sort of pursue one problem versus another, right? Is how much do you spend on things that are likely to happen like a kidney stone versus things that are, you know, halo events, these super high acuity, low occurrence events, like needing to 
you know, one of the episodes we were talking about recently, like finding yourself in a can't intubate, can't oxygenate scenario and needing to achieve like front of the neck surgical access. Like, how do you even begin to approach those kind of problems? Excellent. It's like you're leading right into all of my, my talking points on this. So remind me of the halo one when I forget to come back to it, right? Because it's a really critical one. The first one you're asking is how do you match the human system to what's on the other side of that equation, which is really vehicle systems at this point. So there's a crew vehicle system. And the way that that works is through what's, what's really still in some ways a developing field called human system integration. Now I say developing because even the community of practice at NASA, which has worked on human system integration for a long time, sometimes struggles with their own definitions and agreement on how they should do things. But we have two ways that vehicles and systems are, are kind of worked at NASA, and they have to work in concert. One is called systems engineering integration, right? You do a systems engineering process where you bring together the team that's working on the avionics system, the structures, the propulsion system, the guidance, navigation, control, and crew health and performance system, along with ECLIS, environmental control and life support. They all got to sit around a table, and they all got to do the puts and takes, Right. It, it, it happens now in a process called model-based systems engineering. It happens in computers in part, but somebody still has to make hard decisions about what to take and what not to take. And our goal, when we're trying to look at that, you know, that the difference between what are the small problems we can intervene on and the big problems we're gonna have to respond to is to shrink that big problem size as much as we can by moving as much as we can over into the small problem intervenable, right? If you bring the stuff that you need to prevent kidney stones, like NASA developed potassium citrate as a way, as a medication that can change urine chemistry to decrease the likelihood of kidney stones, right? That's going to decrease the likelihood you're going to have to deal with a kidney stone. But it can introduce risk in other places, right? No, no medication is without a side effect. You're still going to have to have all the mass and volume for that on your spacecraft to bring all those tablets. So it becomes a, a game of put and takes. And that's what systems engineering is. And that process, systems engineering process starts five, 10 years sometimes before these missions are even gonna fly. And this is where the big tension comes in, right? How early do you need to design in the things that you think you're gonna need for this mission in order to move as much of it as you can into that, yeah, we thought about it and we're gonna try to you know, put in the stuff to deal with it. The second part of your question is, how do you make decisions on what to include in that trade-off? This is where we use uh, something called medical probabilistic risk analysis. This is mathematical techniques that are born out of probabilistic risk assessment, um, which is really something that's designed to try to model rare events and help you overcome your biases and what you think is likely to happen versus not. Now, NASA spent about a decade developing um, a medical PRA tool called the Integrated Medical Model. And uh, they're currently developing other ones um, that are like sort of next generation tools. And you can kind of think of it as, it is a um, Bayesian updated Monte Carlo analysis method that you use based on a list of hundred medical conditions that we follow. And there's evidence in there from space flight. There's evidence from terrestrial populations that are analogs. There's like subject matter expert evidence. There's all sorts of levels of evidence that go into feeding the numbers and the probabilities within there to try to get our best shot at what's gonna actually impact the mission level outcomes we care about. Things like loss of crew life, things like, are we gonna get to an evacuation uh, scenario? Things like, how well are they gonna be performing You know, if they've got all these medical issues going on, right? And so, Though that mathematical modeling is something that's no physician can run through in their head, right? That's why we have to use those mathematical models. Nobody can keep in mind the best and worst case scenarios for a hundred different medical conditions, along with the resources it's going to take to treat them or partially treat them or what happens if they go untreated, right? That's why we, we have to bring to bear tools like this to get us in the ballpark, to take our best guess, but making an educated guess and an evidence-based guess on what's likely to happen. And then you gotta take the next step. All right, if this stuff is likely to happen, what does it make sense to treat? That's a clinical question, right? The question of like futility in care comes up. If somebody has a big stroke in space flight, what are you gonna do about it? Does it make sense to include all the stuff for an ICU? Because remember, all the mass and volume you put in there has to be 
matched to the human capability to use it, which is probably not going to be likely to happen. And let's say you do stabilize somebody who has a massive cardiac event or a massive like head bleed, right? Do you have the resources to provide ongoing care? So you run into a futility question right off the bat. If it's going to be too complex in terms of just sheer amount of resources and like how much you're going to need to know, how many experts are you going to call on at the tertiary care center? You're not going to be able to provide that at mission control or on the vehicle. So too complex, too futile. You take those things and you push them all down to the bottom of the list. So what rises up to the top of the list then is those things that you can treat, those things that aren't going to become too much of a mass burden, right? And then you make a decision, right? This is where the risk in space flight is carried. This is why we say, you know, when those guys and girls got on the space shuttle, the PRA analysis for how likely they were to die put their risk at one in 90 just getting on the space shuttle at the end of the program, right? One in 90 times that they fly on that rocket, everybody's going to die. At that time, those calculations had nothing to do with medical. It was just failure of the vehicle. But when you talk about a three-year Mars mission, the likelihood that that human system is going to fail in one of those ways goes way up, and the proportion of risk that the human system carries for that mission goes way up. So you can't solve everything. And if you try to do that from the outset, you're on a fool's errand. The interface you're describing right there between engineering and spaceflight and stoic philosophy is so striking to me right? Because you're coming back to something that we've talked about so many times on this podcast, which is identifying where you as an ER doctor or where you as a human have any control and where you don't. And the second you recognize that bright line, throwing everything you can into the space where you do have control and letting the universe do what it will with the rest of it. And I think that's something we see all the time as ER doctors, because we can't save everybody. We can't do it. And like you said, we're on a fool's errand if we're trying to fix everything all of the time. Um, but we can get to this point where we can try to evaluate, well, where do I make a difference? Where can I make a difference, both in terms of the patient right in front of me and in terms of the field all around them? Um, and I guess my, my question about that would be so far, we're talking a lot about the idea of uh, planning and setup and sort of all the stuff you do before you get there. But what's the second half of this look like for you guys? What's the post-processing? What's your learning cycle look like? How do you upgrade these models as you're actually going forward? I mean, one of the tools that that we use all the time uh, or that I teach all the time comes actually from the um, decision-making expert and poker player, Annie Duke, who talks about this idea of fielding, right? So taking the outcome of a, taking the result of a particular thing and decomposing it into its um, orthogonal vectors of, of performance. How did I do my job and outcome? What actually happened? And being honest and rigorous about that in terms of my ability to learn, like what I actually had control over and therefore what I can upgrade and do in the future. So what's that look like for you guys? I mean, how do you test this? How do you evolve this? So that's both evolving and also a well-trodden pathway. Um, huge amount of simulation happens in spaceflight. Right? This has been true since the days of Mercury. Getting in there and having those crews simulate in, in as um, real-to-life simulators as we can is an ongoing training process and an ongoing way to deconstruct performance uh, effectiveness and, and where you can um, identify those, those places that you can improve. Simulation has been used by the Flight Operations Directorate for as long as I can think of in spaceflight. It continues to be really important, but here's the interesting thing. Simulation is minimally used on the medical side of the equation for spaceflight. And like I said, there's a historical reason, right? Medical wasn't really the driving problem in low Earth orbit. It really hasn't been. It's been the high energy phases of flight. So when I say evolving, right, we're still um, arguing for expanded simulation now, some simulation does happen in the research world. NASA Johnson Space Center has an experiment called HERA, which is a, um, uh, a giant mock-up of a facility that mimics what crews would experience in long-duration spaceflight. And they put these crews together with very tight controls and a lot of behavioral monitoring as well as a whole bunch of other stuff. And they, they look at them for 30, 45 days, right? The Russians have done things like Mars 500. Uh, you know, there's there's some longer term isolation exposure things that are simulation preparation for long duration spaceflight, trying to get a handle around 
some of those variables and where we can do some of that stuff. But as you know, every analog has its limitations, right? So part of the challenge for NASA, as we look further out, is to make sure that we design into the systems of today the capability to gather the data and evidence that we need to inform our understanding for the systems of tomorrow. When we go to the Artemis program and go back to the moon, a lot of what Human Health and Performance Directorate at NASA is kind of having a conversation with the rest of the agency about is, we're asking you to put more monitoring and more data gathering and data handling capability into these systems than you might like to, because this is gonna be one of the very only chances we're gonna to get to capture data in these environments that's gonna be extremely relevant to what's gonna to happen to crews when you try to send them to Mars. And there are still fundamental questions we're trying to answer. We do not have a dose response curve for partial gravity for humans, meaning when they go land on the moon and they're in one six G, are they gonna get enough of a workout that we don't have to worry about bone and muscle loss that's gonna affect their performance or not? Right? When, when they go to Mars, it's going to be three-eighths Earth gravity. Is that going to be enough of a workout to mitigate the bone loss and the muscle loss we see? We don't know the answer to that. Right, It adds to those domains of uncertainty. And you know, part of the way that we try to control that is say, we've figured out what are effective exercise systems on the ISS. You probably need to have things that are at least as effective as that to control some of that risk. But man, those mass and volume allocations are really challenging. When we sit down at the systems engineering table, you add the additional mass for the exercise system and the vibration isolation that you got to do in order to keep people from shaking the vehicle apart while they're exercising, right? Um, you got to give something someplace else and that increases risk in other places. So it's a very challenging game across the board for risk. But the one thing you can control outside of that is how much do you simulate? How much do you run through these things and try to get as close as you can in the analog situations to the situations you're going to deal with? And you and I, right, we have the benefit in, in residency and, and beyond of doing simulation for those challenging, high acuity, low likelihood events, right? We could go in and, you know, look at this need for a, getting to a need for a pericardiosynthesis, right, in the emergency department or you know, something like that where we don't do it very often, mm -hmm. but we could practice it if we needed to. And we could have other people break down with us after the fact, okay, what should you have done? What shouldn't you have done? Right. How do you think about this differently? And of course, you know, once everybody gets past their ego, they start thinking, okay, this is what I need to change. And if there's anything I've learned in emergency medicine, I heard this once from somebody in the military, I don't remember who, you don't rise to the level of your aspirations when you're in these situations. You fall to the level of your training. So training, training, training is key. Astronauts have a two-year training cycle before going to the ISS. They get 40 hours of medical training if they're not a physician. 40 hours where they bounce through an emergency department, an ophthalmologist's office, a dentist's office, an operating room, you know, a handful of things that just try to get you a little bit of exposure so you can talk to the flight surgeon. That sort of thing has to change when you look at these really long duration missions because you can't stuff everything into those training cycles. And now you have to have crew health and performance systems that enable in-mission learning and simulation. While they're sitting on that nine month journey coasting to Mars, they need to be simulating and training along the way. It's what makes it interesting, right? This is outside the bounds of what anybody has ever experienced in our species. So how do you come to grips and grapple with that type of problem? That's what makes it fun. For somebody who's listening to this, who's maybe just starting out in the arc of learning about emergencies, whether they're an ER doctor or a hopeful astronaut or anybody else in the universe, what, um, you know, I, and I say that anybody else in the universe, I think it rings a little bit differently when I'm talking to you, but <laughs> anyone else listening to this, what would you what would you say to them? What would you advise them? How, how do people start learning about this kind of stuff? And maybe that's a parallel problem to, you know, if you're sitting in a nine month mission to Mars, how do you keep learning and growing and teaching yourself? And part of it sounds like the answer is having good support systems and people that push you and sort of like feed things into you, having a mission control you can go back and forth with and talk with and having, you know, a sense of vision of why it's important to learn and grow in a particular dimension. But 
no matter what you build, right? A lot of this is ultimately going to fall, like you said, on the human system that's going to have to absorb the need to grow and learn these skills. So how do people start that? Well, there's the career advice and there's the life advice, you know? I mean, you know, from the perspective of aerospace medicine as a, as a discipline, as a specialty, right? Which is really kind of where the some of this stuff starts. It's always been a niche domain because it's, it's never been that big. The need has never been that big. But with the advent of commercial space flight really starting to change the space field, that's going to change, right? There's going to be more need. There's going to be more places to interface. And so, you know, what used to be sort of a niche field because it really kind of only existed in, in international space agencies is going to grow. And we've seen, we've jumped over the, the, the chasm in, in that domain. When SpaceX launched the first private mission to the space station, not their demo one, but the first actual one that was no longer kind of being evaluated, you know, from a demonstration perspective, that happened in November of this past year. We, we are now seeing government agencies letting go of space flight and it's going to be broadening out. And, and so I expect that the, the opportunities are going to increase. SpaceX, uh, my friend Anil over at SpaceX is advertising more opportunities for students, for people to get involved. Um, you know, that's happening in a variety of different places where in the past it used to be just NASA and its contractors, right? So getting in, getting plugged in and, and networking with people in that domain is a good way to start understanding where you can go. NASA Johnson Space Center has clerkships that they do in April and October. Um, the University of Texas Medical Branch has a, a principles of aviation and space medicine that they do in the summer. These are month-long things that can get plugged in for residents and students that can just get you familiar with and conversing with the people in the field to see if it makes sense for you. But from the life side of that question, right? I never thought that I was gonna be a risk manager. And I found that to be one of the most fascinating jobs I've ever gotten to do. And it's also led to a whole bunch of research questions that I'm now kind of working on in a different capacity. I wouldn't even have been aware of them. With my engineering and emergency medicine background, I never thought I would be there, but being open to where the problems take you uh, ensures that you're going to keep working on interesting problems. And the perspective that I bring as an engineer to the physicians and life scientists that I work with has been invaluable to help them refine what's important about the problems they're working on and how to, how to communicate that with engineers, program managers, and other people. The perspective that I bring as a physician to the engineers and program managers helps them to understand why some things are being asked and why they should be prioritized maybe differently than they otherwise thought about it because they've usually been living in a domain where they can just foist off risk onto the human system. And the further they go out and the more they try, the less that's gonna work. So from a life perspective, how do you make those choices? I don't know, make sure you're you're giving a chance to things that are interesting to you and being willing to bring the expertise that you have to bear on new and different problems sometimes is outside people's comfort zone. But I think if you're getting a little uncomfortable, you're probably growing. Eric, this has been absolutely incredible. And I have so much to think about from this, about handling uncertainty and risk and how to design a better version of the systems I wrap myself around to support me better and that I teach uh, the next generation of, of ER doctors as well to support them. Um, but as we come to a close of this, uh, I want to give you a chance to issue a challenge to anybody listening to this, something that you want them to start doing or try doing or, or what you want them to do when they end this conversation, incredibly excited to have listened to you talk about it. I think that, you know, finishing up on the, the life advice part of things, if we're going to push ourselves into new domains and try to keep growing, then you've got to be able to uh, find ways to reach out and start either learning about or kind of uh, touching upon complementary or slightly different areas from where your comfort level is. So while, you know, we as residents and students and, and, and emergency medicine practitioners, we really have like a set of information that we go after to try to to, to nail down our skills and our abilities within the emergency medicine domain. Spaceflight is an example of something that, you know, all of this conversation today is, is an area that, that really 
leverages and builds upon those skill sets and needs those skill sets, but those skill sets have to be able to communicate and articulate what's important to different expertise and different people. So my challenge would be to reach out your journal club or your journal article reading or something along those lines, a textbook outside of a domain that is immediately what you're used to looking at and extend that to someplace else that you might find some interest in. Um, if space medicine is one of those ways to kind of stretch that out, there's a lot of different textbooks and articles out there that kind of can start you down a path of, I wonder what's here. You know, Jeff Davis's Fundamentals of Aerospace Medicine is a gigantic book. I don't recommend you read the whole thing, but there's probably a chapter in there that brushes up against an area that you're interested in emergency medicine that might spark your interest and ask, get yourself asking that question of, I wonder what's after the next hill. I wonder what the next opportunity is. I wonder if there's an opportunity here for me to do some research, to make some contributions, to work in some of these domains and to challenge myself to grow in new ways that maybe I hadn't originally thought about. That's how we stay young, I guess. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. It's an honor to talk to you and um, just thank you. Dan, thank you so much for having me. It's great to reconnect with you and it's an honor to be on here and I, I uh, hope it's been interesting. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at The Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.